Welcome to the Antioch Sheffield podcast. We are so glad that you can join us for today's message, which is brought to you by Pastor Todd Roberts. For more information about Antioch Sheffield, head to our website at antiochsheffield.org.uk. Well, uh, now I have to confess as we move into our message, uh, as of yesterday afternoon, I had a message prepared that I was happy with and excited about, and then I sat down to kind of review it, and the Lord was like, nope, you're not preaching that message. So, so I had to kind of rework things and uh, was, you know, frantically, you know, uh, slaving over a hot Bible last night and uh, have arrived at a very different message than where we started off with. So it might be a little rough, a little raw, but uh, you'll give me grace for that, right? So we are continuing our series that we started last week called Learning to Love. Learning to Love. And, and the what this series is about is exactly what it says on the tin. It's about helping us as followers of Jesus learn how to love well, how to, how to you know, what helps love and what hinders love. What, what does loving well look like? And, you know, as I was thinking about this topic, I was thinking of, you know, the passage that probably comes to most of your minds. If I said, passage on love in the Bible, go. Most of you would probably say, uh, love is patient, love is kind. You know, that, we'd, we'd jump to that passage in 1 Corinthians 13, right? You know, it's the passage that's commonly read at weddings, and, and it's, 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 you know, every one of people, you know, it gets so, put on posters and sewn on pillows and all kinds of things, but this is what it says. It says, wow, bless you. That was awesome. <laughs> love is patient. <laughs> love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It, is not, it does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. And we all sigh. Oh, isn't that such a nice passage. It's so, you know, we love that passage, and, and rightfully so. It's a brilliant description of the traits and attributes of love. It's the ideal that many couples are striving for in marriage, and that's why we read it at, mar- at weddings so much. But the fascinating thing to me about this passage is the context that it occurs in, because Paul actually didn't write this like, you know what, Christians are going to need a sweet passage someday to read at their weddings. You know, they, uh, let's, let's write something really romantic and, and, and it'll, it'll, it'll be perfect for weddings. He wasn't thinking about that at all. Actually, what he was thinking about, the, the reason this passage was written was it was written for the church, and it was describing how the church should relate to one another. In fact, if you look at the context in which this occurs, so this happens in 1 Corinthians 13, but if you read 1 Corinthians 12, the whole discussion there is about spiritual gifts. It's about prophecy and tongues and and, uh, words of knowledge and that kind of thing. And and, and so he has this long discussion about it in chapter 12, and then in chapter 13, he goes on about the most brilliant rabbit trail that there has ever been, and he says, Whoa, 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 before we continue this conversation, guys, we've got to talk about love because love is the heart motive for, for all of these spiritual gifts. Love is what's at, behind the heart of it. And so he, he's, he's driving at this point. And, and actually, the part that precedes this passage is really, really interesting. So if we start off at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 13, he says, if I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong 
or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy, and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains but didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it, but if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. Paul's saying that, that it doesn't matter how gifted you are. It doesn't matter how spiritual you are. It doesn't matter how prophetic you are. It doesn't matter you know, how, how glorious your God encounter was or how great your prayer time was. It doesn't matter how much you sacrifice and serve even. He's saying if it's not motivated by love, it's worth nothing. It's useless. He's saying love is at the core of all of this. And if these things aren't making you a more loving person, if it's not being driven by love from within you, if people aren't feeling loved as a result of it, then there's something missing. It's as useless as a car without petrol. Love is at the core of what, we're, of, of what, should, of what we do as Christians. So in this long discussion about spiritual gifts, he pauses and he gives us this strong exhortation. He said, look, you could be the most gifted person in the room. You could be a, you know, uh, healing people. You could, be, uh, you could be incredibly great gifted prophet. You could, but if it's not motivated by love, then it's useless. And that's not how we think about things very often. I think... As a church, in the church, and I've grown up in church, we're generally, gift, uh, we're generally impressed by the super gifted. We're impressed by the gifted speaker who's really articulate. We're impressed by the, the insightful author or the, the leader who's built a massive church or, or has a global ministry. And, and in the charismatic church, we're really impressed by signs and wonders and gifts. And, and you know, that stuff is amazing, but we're really impressed by those people who, who seem to be prophetic or be healing people or something like that. And, 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 and we think that's, you know, that's the goal. That that's what we're trying to get to. Oh, one day, once I'm close enough to Jesus, I'll be able to lay hands on the sick and see them made well. One day, when I get close enough to Jesus, I'll just be able to, you know, see things in the Spirit and prophesy over people. And, and you know, those are all good things. But gifting isn't the measure of maturity. Our gifts are freely given. But that's not necessarily, the, if you're gifted, that doesn't necessarily mean you're a mature Christian. If, if we're, our gifting is just simply a gift from God. And, you know, think about Samson. He's a great example of this. God gave him these extraordinary uh, spiritual gifts. He was this incredibly strong man who could, who could push down a building with his own arms. He could, he could be totally outnumbered and slay all his enemies with a donkey's jawbone, which is just a kind of mind-blowing story. Uh, he, was a, he was this man who could just do these extraordinary things, and yet his story is a tragedy because even though he was extraordinarily gifted like no one before or since, as far as we know, he was a mess in private. He was a man that was unable, he was dominated by his appetites. He was unable to control his temper. He was, he was unable to control his lust, and all of it led to his downfall. And see, that's why gifting can't be the measure of our maturity. Instead, the measure of our maturity is revealed by how we love those closest to us. The reality of 
of how well we love people is measured by how we love those who are closest to us. So it's, you know, that, that's the best proof that you're a follower of Jesus, is how well you love people. It's the best proof of your character, your spiritual maturity. It's how well you love those people right in front of you. And I think for a lot of us, that's a paradigm shift for how we think about our faith. But I think at the end of our life, we, we all want to stand before Jesus and we want to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. But Jesus, I don't think he's going to ask us about how right we got our doctrine. He's not going to ask us about how many signs and wonders we did. What he's going to ask us is, with all the grace that I gave you, all the gifts that I gave you, all the opportunities that I gave you, the health that I gave you, the skills and the talents, all the opportunities, did you learn to love? Did you learn to love? It's the same standard for every person, whether you're well-educated or not, whether you're rich or you're poor, whether you've been in church for a long time or been in church for a short time. Had, did you learn to love? You see, that's what Christianity is meant to do to us. It's supposed to transform us into loving people. I think that you know, Paul writes in Romans that, that, that we're to be transformed, that the Holy Spirit is working to transform us into the image of Jesus. And Jesus is the most loving person there is. He was love personified. So if we're becoming more like Jesus, we're becoming more loving people. So this is the goal. This is, you know, I don't know how you've thought about, like, what, what am I trying to get to here in Christianity? Well, what you're trying to get to is becoming a person of love. And that's just not how we think about it a lot of times. We think maybe about loving God more, you know, we might think about that. Maybe, maybe like getting free from some sin, we think about, you know, being kind to people and doing good deeds, but, but God's after the heart and He's saying, look, I want you to be able to love me with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. But let's be honest, you know, we talk about love and, you know, nobody's going to argue against this, you know exhortation to love one another. You know, that's a nice thought. We, we'd all agree, yeah, sure, we should, we should love one another. That's, that's a good thing. You know, it's easy to sing the Beatles song, all we need is love, stuff like that. But, but it's another thing, I'm sure you'd all agree, to actually do it, to actually love well. I think we tend to generalize and romanticize and idealize what love is all about. And, and we can project it out there. Like when I, when I say, hey, we should love one another, we can think, yeah, right, I, I want to like you know, help that homeless person, or I want to give to starving kids in Africa, or I want, to, I want to do some sort of act of benevolence, and those are good things. But it's a lot easier to love people who are distant from you than people who are close to you. And the reality of love is that it's found in how we love those closest to us. You know, that's where the rubber hits the road for us. You know, it's, if you think about it, 90% of your life is spent with your family, your colleagues at work, your course mates at school, and if you're a church member, the people who go to your church. And if we aren't loving those people well, then can it be said of us that we're actually becoming loving? Are we actually, you know, if we're not loving the people that are right in front of us, then are we missing it somewhere? So I specifically mentioned family, colleagues, course mates, and church members because what, what I think is interesting about it is that we spend a lot of our life with these people, but we don't choose them. You know, we don't get to choose who our parents are or our siblings. We don't get to choose who our aunts and uncles are or in-laws. 
Uh, we don't get to choose who we work with. We don't get to choose who we go to church with for the most part. I mean, it's, it's really beyond our control. We can, kind of, we can choose our friends and we can choose our spouse. But beyond that, we don't have a lot of control. And so I think what, what we do, or at least I know I have a tendency to do this, would be like, well, I don't know who that person is that's come to this church or that's working in my, uh, in my, in my uh, you know, in all the places I've worked before this and thought like, well, this person's here. I don't particularly like them. And I just kind of ignore them. I dismiss them. I'm not really interested in them because I didn't really choose this relationship. It's just there. And so I could be really passive about those types of relationships. And I think that's true for a lot of us is we can be really passive about the people that we interact with most in our life because we didn't necessarily choose these relationships. But if I were to ask you, what would your colleagues at work say about the kind of relationship that you offer? What would they say? If I were to ask your course mates or your flatmate, how well are you loving? What would they say? Would they say, oh, I, I feel really loved. I feel like really cared for. Like this person is interested in me. Like they value me. Like they, 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 are interested in what's going on in my life, they care about my ups and downs, I feel love from them. Or would they say, I, I think that person, they, they just kind of keep their distance. Or, or, or I feel sort of judged by them. Or I feel like they're mad at me. Or I feel like, like they're, look, they're, they're critical of me and just looking to get at things in my life. And, and so what are these people saying? That's where the rubber hits the road for us in our Christian life. Can our can our friends, can our family members, can our spouses, can our kids say that they're actually experiencing love from us? You see, I believe that God brought all these people in our lives, even the people we didn't ask for, for a reason. And I think they're there to help transform us, to help us become more loving people. They're not there by mistake. They're there, I believe God places these people in our lives on purpose. So, we can learn to love. And so maybe instead of resenting these people or just tolerating them or just kind of, you know, keep filtering them out and just kind of, I'm not really getting involved in their lives, maybe our role as believers, one of the best things we can do to, to show the world what Jesus is like is learn to love these people. I heard a story uh, by the well-known Christian speaker, Graham Cook, and he was uh, He's telling about how a number of years ago there were, uh, he's a prophetic guy, he goes around holding like prophetic training schools, and, and um, that can be controversial in some circles of the church, and so uh, there were some people that really did not like Graham Cook. They, these three guys in particular, they really had it out for Graham Cook, and so they would go to his events, and they would stand outside protesting, saying, this guy's a deceiver, this guy's a heretic, don't go to these things. They, they would, uh, they would uh, go to towns where Graham was going to go in advance and go around and talk to churches to try to discourage people from going to his events. They, would, they had an email list, kind of the anti-Graham Cook email list, and, and then every event that he had, these guys, these three guys, they called them the, the Three Stooges, would come in and sit in the front row like this and just scowl at Graham the whole time. And Man, I can't imagine <laughs> how hard that would be as a speaker to just have that happen over and over. These three people that you know are in opposition to everything you're doing just sitting there scowling at you. But that's what was happening. And this went on for years. And, and over time, Graham was like, Lord, this is, really get, this is really grating on me. Can you get rid of these guys? But they kept showing up and they kept showing up. So Graham, uh, one night, he's asleep and he has this dream. 
And in the dream, he's sitting on the father's lap, and, and the father says, Graham, I have something I want to show you. Oh, sure, let me see it, Lord. And, and these angels wheel out this block of marble. And he says, what do you think of that, son? Graham's like, oh, that's, that's brilliant. It's beautiful, amazing. And he's like, well, well watch this. And he, says, and he sees Jesus come out, and he sees Jesus trace with his finger the outline of what kind of looks like a person. And then Jesus smiles at him and winks and walks away. He says, what do you think of that? And he says, well, it's interesting. What, what, what's it going to be? And he's like, would you like to see? And he said, yeah. And all of a sudden, these three pairs of hands appear, kind of like, you know, in, in the story of Daniel and, you know, when the, the hand writes on the wall, it's just this kind of disembodied hand. And these three hands, these three pairs of hands appear, and they, they begin to chisel on the marble. They're, they've got the hammer, they've got the chisel, and they're, they're hitting it, and they're slowly making progress. And, and the father says to Graham, Graham, these guys, they, they need some encouragement. They're, they're, doing, they're doing a great work. You need to encourage them. And so he's a British guy, so he was kind of, you know, reserved at first. He's like, come on, chaps. Keep it going, chaps. Good job. And, and he's like, no, son, you've got, they're doing a great work. They need your encouragement. And so he's like, come on, guys. You can do it. Come on. You can do it. And he's like, no, no, no. You've got to go for it. And so in the, in the dream, he stands up and he's like, go for it, guys. Strength, skill, go. You can do it. Come on. And, and there's pandemonium around him and angels are laughing and people are celebrating. And, and, and he's, just, he's just shouting his encouragements in this dream. And, and then everything settles down. And he looks, and the statue is of him, but him kind of in his glory. And, and he's just taken aback, and he says, son, this is how, the father says to him, son, this is how I see you. And he just begins to weep. Oh, Lord, it's so beautiful. I didn't know you loved me this much. I didn't know you saw me this way. He just felt the love of God in that moment. And then, he, then the father says to him, would you like to see that these, these, would you like to say thank you to the people that are doing this hard work? And he said, yeah, Father, I'd love to thank them. And then out from behind the statue come the three stooges, these guys that have been hassling him and harassing him over and over again. He's like, oh, <laughs> oh. but, but he, he woke up and he, he said, ah, oh, I get it now. And he scared his wife half to death. He's like, this is brilliant. These guys, the, the three stooges, they're here to make me like Jesus. They're here. I, I, I've been asking for them to go away, but I actually need these guys in my life. And it totally changed his perspective on him. And he began to pray that these guys would show up at his events. And so the next time he had an event, he was driving up and as he arrived at the venue where they, these guys were, he, he saw them out, you know, with their signs. This man is a deceiver. This man is a heretic. And he, and he just felt this warm surge of affection for them. Oh, there are my boys. There they are, doing their hard work of making me more like Jesus. I'm so thankful for those guys. And, you know, the event comes around, and, and, and these guys, they do what they do. They come down. They sit on the front. They get their scowls on their face. And Graham sees them. He's like, oh, guys, you're back. Listen, thank you so much to coming, for coming to all my events. Hey, do you have a long drive? Do you need, a, you need uh, some food? Do you need a cup of tea? Anything like that? And they were like, uh, I think he's really lost it this time. But but, but he kept doing that to them. And they, they, for about a year, this went on. They would come. He would welcome them with open arms. And eventually, they just faded away. And he never heard from them again. That's how God wants to use the people in your life that you may not have chosen to be there. So it could be the boss that's really hard to get along with. It could be the sibling that is really difficult to love. It could be the... the uh, 
the, the, the neighbor that is just getting on your nerves all the time. It could be that person in your life group who you just, you know, if you're honest, it's not your first choice to hang out with that person. They're kind of bug you or, or get on your nerves, or maybe you feel like they're critical, whatever. What if God put these people in your life to form you and make you like Jesus, to make you a loving person? It's a different way of seeing relationships in our lives. So I want us to just think about this for a minute. So people that you are there in your family, people that are at work or at school that you spend time with, and people in the church, how are you loving these people? Now, I want to specifically focus for the rest of our time here this morning on the church. How do you love people in the church? Because as I've been studying for this series, one of the things that struck me is all the one another's in the Bible, not all of them, but most of the one another's in the Bible, you know, love one another, serve one another, forgive one another, all those things, most of them are directed towards the church. It's saying this is how you're to relate to one another. We tend to generalize those and, and, and make that kind of a universal principle, and that's not a wrong thing to do, but actually, if you look at what it's talking about, it's saying, hey, guys, you got to love one another. Hey, church, you've got to love one another. Hey, church, you've got to forgive one another. Hey, church, you've got to encourage one another. It's, it's internal directives on how we're to relate. Why do they do this? Why does this occur so often in the New Testament? It happens over and over again. I think one reason is because they knew that our best witness to the world is how well we love one another. We talked about this last week. Jesus put it this way in his uh, final speech to his disciples before going to the cross in John 13. He says, so now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. We talked about this last week, that, that it's our love that is our distinguishing mark as Christians, and, and it's our love for one another that will prove to the world that our faith is real, that Jesus is alive and well within us. So when we love each other well, it draws people to Jesus. If we don't love each other well, it drives them away. And here's the thing. I think, just this is a wild hunch here. I think the devil knows this. <laughs> and so his strategy is to divide and isolate the body of Christ. And it's been the same strategy since the very beginning of the church. He wants to bring conflict. He wants to bring division because he knows a divided church is a weak church. So there's spiritual warfare against church unity. I think that's one of the reasons the New Testament writers keep saying, hey, guys, keep loving one another, keep loving one another, because they knew that there'd be spiritual warfare around this. And so choosing to love, choosing to love people in the church is actually an act of spiritual warfare. And I think they also kept talking about this and harping on this over and over again because they knew it would be hard. I mean, on a practical level, you've got people from all different walks of life. Like, it's a complete reordering of society. Kingdom society does not function the way first century Jewish society or first century Roman society worked. All of a sudden, you've got upper class and lower class, educated and non-educated. You've got Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, all these different people, all these different nations suddenly gathered around Jesus as equals. And that 
is just a complete paradigm shift for people. <laughs> You've got slaves and masters, men and women, all these people interacting that don't normally interact. It's a whole new way of doing things, and it was so difficult, and it still is. And so they're giving us strong exhortations to learn to love one another. And that is the expectation. Like, we can't use this as an excuse. Like, ah, I don't really, I don't really like that guy. That, that person's from you know, a different country. I don't really get on with people from that country. Or I don't really like that person. They're, you know, posh and, you know, I've got their PhD or something. Or, or I don't want to hang out with that person because they, they you know, they're kind of rough. You know, the New Testament doesn't give us those options. In fact, John the Apostle writes in 1 John 2, he says this, he says, if anyone claims I am living in the light but still hates a fellow believer, that person is still living in darkness. Anyone who loves a fellow believer is living in the light and does not cause others to stumble. But anyone who hates a fellow believer is still living and walking in darkness. So John's just reiterating here what I've been saying today. Love is the measure of our faith. Our love is proof of our faith in Jesus. And if we're unable to love our brothers and sisters in Christ, then John is questioning whether or not there is a reality to our faith. Now, that's a sobering thought. <laughs> and you might be sitting there thinking, well, Todd, I don't hate anybody in the church. That's, that's strong words. And, and I get that. I, I think if I sat down with any one of you today and said, oh, now, honestly, tell me, are there people that you hate in the church? I don't think any of you would say that. I, at least I really hope not, I, but I don't think you would. I mean, but I have been a part of the church my whole life. I've grown up in the church. I've been in this church for 14 years. I've been leading this church for eight years. And what I've observed is that hatred rarely starts as full-blown hatred. You don't just snap your fingers and suddenly you hate somebody. Hatred starts with small little decisions, small little seeds of lovelessness, and then it grows. It becomes a pattern, a habit in your life, and pretty soon what started as just small little decisions not to love becomes hatred. And what I want to do for the rest of our time, I just, I, I just don't want that to happen to us. I want us to be a church that loves well. And so I want to just take some time to highlight some of the ways I've seen this happen, the patterns that repeat themselves over and over and over again. And it's not just this church. It's, it's any pastor that has been a pastor for a while would say they've seen these patterns happening in their churches. But I think one way that this starts is when we isolate ourselves. That can be a seed of hatred. So the question I want to ask you this morning is, how many real relationships do you have when, in this church? If you're a member of this church, how many real relationships do you have? If you've been a part of this church for more than a few months, do you, do you know other people's names? Now, I don't know everybody's names. Sometimes I'm like drawing blanks, so it's, it's okay. You don't have to know everybody's names. But are you isolated? You know, are you just coming to church just for, uh, just for you to kind of come and participate in worship and then leave? Are you doing that because you don't think you need others, or are you doing that because you're, not, you're afraid to trust others? See, a lot of us, I think we've been burned one too many times, and so we just say, you know what, this isn't worth it. And love is painful. Can I just say that? Like, you know, but we're called to love like it's never going to hurt. And that's the hard thing. We have, to, we have to move past that hurt that we've experienced and actually make the choices that love requires of us. And part of that is being in community. 
What if you're involved in community to some extent, but you're very guarded? You, you don't let people really know what's going on in your life. Maybe you're, you, you know, you've got real battles that you're facing, struggles that you're facing. Maybe you're experiencing doubt. Maybe you're experiencing temptation or addiction in some level, and, and, and you're not talking to people. You're just coming to church and putting on your happy face, and, and everything looks okay, but deep down you are drowning inside. That's not what church is about. Church is the place we come with our struggles, with our pains, and we learn to bear one, another, bear one another's burdens. So there's a choice that we have to make to make ourselves vulnerable. Otherwise, we become isolated, and as we become isolated, we become bitter, we become distant, we begin to question motives, and pretty soon, we're out of the church altogether. <laughs> so if that's the pattern in your life, I urge you to get into community somewhere, somehow. It doesn't have to be here, but find a community. This is why we have life groups. We encourage you to be in life groups so that you don't get isolated, so that you don't get taken out. This is a strategy of the enemy, and so many of us in this culture that values isolation, independence, and self-sufficiency get taken out by this issue. Secondly, what about indifference? You know, do you just tolerate other people in the church? Do you kind of just think, well, I've seen that person, but I don't know their name, I don't really care about their name, if I'm honest. Do, do, do you choose not to get involved in their lives? Do you not make time for other people in the church? Do you, do you, if someone shares a hardship that they're having, do you just kind of offer a quick platitude and say, I'll pray for you? <laughs> or do you actually engage with what's going on and learn to help carry one another's burdens? John goes on, he writes this, Later in, in uh, 1 John 3, he says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Just read 1 John. It's like a just, he just pounds on this issue over and over again. But he's right. He's hammering against indifference here. And indifference extends to maybe when we see other people sin. You know, when we, when we see them getting, you know, maybe they're, they're caught up in sin, or maybe they're doing something that you know is sabotaging their relationships. They've got an issue, but, but we are so, we, 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 we see it, but we don't want to say anything because it might, you know, kind of rock the boat a little bit. We don't want to risk that, that, that type of confrontational conversation. So my question is, do you love people enough to have those hard conversations, or are you just going to stay in indifference? You see, the indifference, that where this shows up, it's going to, I think, in most of our minds, show up as inconvenient. Oh, I, don't, I don't have time for that, or I don't really want to step in and have that awkward conversation, or I don't, I don't really want to help person with that, that person with their need. I remember one time somebody asked me to move, uh, like in the, that was in the church, this was years ago, asked me, said, hey, I need help with moving, and I was like, no, it's the last thing I want to do. And man, every time I've had people help me move, I'm so convicted of that, that I was just unwilling to help somebody. We, we just moved, actually, and a number of you came and helped us, and thank you for that. And you also heaped burning coals on my head of that time that I, I refused to help that person move. But love is not convenient. It requires us to, to pause from what we're doing and actually help the person. It's the whole story that Jesus is getting at at, at this, the, um, uh, gosh, what is it? The road to... Um, 
of the Samaritan, the Good Samaritan. That's what I'm trying to say. The Good Samaritan. So like two people, they see this guy laying on the side of the road and they think, uh, I can't, I don't have time. I got to busy. I've got stuff to do. But the one that allows himself to be inconvenienced, Jesus says, that's what love is. Another one, exclusion. Now, I don't see this as a huge issue in our church. In fact, one of the things I love about our church is that we are so diverse and long may that stay. May it just continue to increase. But we don't want to let our differences in age or gender or uh, race or nationality or education or class be something that we divide over, even deep down in our hearts. And I think the way that this shows up in church a lot of times is, is you get these little cliques that form, and then they don't intermingle. But the gift of, of diversity is being able to mix with different people from different nations, from different uh, 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 areas of society, and you learn so much, you gain so much. All of us have a gift to give, and we don't want to exclude people from our, from our church in any way. Because if that doesn't happen, we've all seen it. I mean, I don't have to talk about how, how prolific, how racism just keeps rearing its ugly head everywhere you go. And sadly, the church has had, not this church specifically, but the church, Big C, has had issues with racism as well. And that breaks the heart of God because every person, no matter what race you're from, is made in God's image. They're equally valuable to God. There is no justification ever in Christianity for racism. Lastly, I would say another seed of hatred is offense. And this may be the biggest problem of all. You know, we get offended by one another, and then we distance ourselves from one another, and that distance allows that, that enmity to grow. And I've just watched this destroy relationships in the church over and over again. And you know what happens? Here's my theory about offense. What happens when we get offended and we start holding somebody at arm's length is that we close our heart off to that person. We can't receive from them anymore. All we see is what they do wrong. We just, we're, we're just looking for evidence to support and justify our offense. And one way that this shows up, and this isn't just unique to this church, it's happened in, in, in every church I've ever heard of, I've heard pastors talk about this, is that you get these people that will come to, to you and say, hey, uh, you know, I'm just, I'm sorry, I'm going to leave the church. I'm not really feeling fed anymore. And 99 times out of 100, I don't think that is the problem of the pastor not preaching a helpful message. 99 times out of 100, I think it's the person who's gotten offended at whoever's in the pulpit and so they hold them at arm's length and they close off their heart for them and so from them and so even though the person might be saying something that's good and helpful and is nourishing everybody else spiritually that person's heart is closed off and so they just can't receive it anymore and so they are starving because they haven't received any nourishment even though it's being offered before them it's kind of like coming to a meal and refusing to eat and then complaining about being hungry That's just one example, but this happens all over the place, and it happens within, you know, in, in relationships within the church all the time, and it is a strategy of the enemy. So here's what I want to say. If you're offended at someone, don't just cross your arms and wait for someone to come to you. Don't just, don't just hope that they read your mind and come in repentance. Your offense is your responsibility. It's not somebody else's responsibility to resolve your offense. In other words, so, so don't sit around waiting for them to read your mind. Go and apologize to them. Be reconciled to them. There's so much more I could say about that. But all of these things are seeds of hatred. 
And if these things are allowed to grow, they become full-blown hatred in our lives. And so, if you recognize some of these patterns in your life, then we need to repent. We need to actually be proactive in dealing with these things. You know, as Christianity becomes increasingly marginalized in our society, we cannot afford for these things to cause distance and separate us from one another. We need our church community. Christianity is meant to be lived in the context of community now more than ever, and at least in our lifetimes. So what I'm, what I'm saying is I, I, want us, I want it to be said of us that we are a real church community, not a shallow, superficial, put on a happy face, put your, you know, have your, your Sunday best on community, but a community that really, truly loves one another, that actually knows how to care one another's burdens, that's willing to be inconvenienced, that is willing to forgive, that's willing to own your mistakes, that's willing to, to, uh, to help somebody and speak the truth in love when they're falling from the, the, the way of God. I want us to be a people, like it says in 1 Peter, that love sincerely from the heart, that we have this healthy community of relationships, that when people come in here, they, they literally say, I don't know if this is corny, but my, how these people love each other. That is the best evangelism that we could ever have, and that's why Jesus ex- exhorted us, new command I give you, love one another. So how do we respond to this today? I think it's just a simple question. What does love require of me? As I've been talking today, I'm trusting the Holy Spirit's been bringing things to mind. And it's, I I have to say, like, I don't think I've ever heard a sermon on this topic, or I don't remember it if I did, but I think based on how often this occurs in the New Testament, I just want to challenge you. Let's be intentional with our relationships with one another. Let's, if there's, if there's a broken relationship, let's do whatever, as, as far as, is, it's up to, as we have control over it, let's try to be reconciled with people. If you have sinned against somebody, go to them and repent. If you are distant from community, if you're isolated in one way or another, Make the brave choice to enter in. If you struggle deep down with, with you know, uh, uh, exclusion thoughts, you know, I, I don't really want to hang out with that person or that type of person, then that's a place of repentance. If you're just indifferent, if you feel like, you know what, I, I'm so naturally selfish, and gosh, selfishness is like the barrier we all have to deal with whenever we try to love people. Ask the Lord to help you make space in your heart for the people that he's placed you with. And let's receive the gift that they are to us, whether they're our best friends or not. And I'm not saying you have to be best friends with everybody in the church, but I am saying we're called to love everybody in our church. So let's just take a moment, if you could just bow your heads, and let's do some business with God. So Holy Spirit, we invite you now to speak to our hearts as we (laughs) get down to where the rubber hits the road about loving other people. Lord, would you help us identify the things that are hindering love in our lives? 
I ask that you'd expose those places where we've made those small decisions to, to not love, to pull back, to withhold what we have to offer. And Lord, for every way that I've done that, every way that we've done that, Lord, we repent. So Holy Spirit, I just invite you to speak to our hearts. Show us what love requires of us. you know our hearts increase our capacity to love God we repent of the ways that our love for one another has been shallow and the ways that it's been lukewarm or indifferent Lord we repent of the ways that we've allowed ourselves to be isolated and divided Lord as Jesus prayed make us one let us be united around you let our love for one another be an example for the world to see. God, may we love one another well. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening today. To listen to more messages like this one, head to our website at antiochsheffield.org.uk forward slash podcast. We are looking forward to seeing you soon.